Hello, and welcome to Get Me Another, a podcast where we explore those movies that followed in the wake of blockbuster hits and attempted to replicate their success. My name is Chris Iannacone, and with me is, as always, is my co-host, Rob Lamorgis. Bitty, 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 bitty. Hello, Chris. Hello, Rob. Today, we're going to talk about two properties that were highly influential on Star Wars, Buck Rogers, and Flash Gordon. Unquestionably, the two most recognizable sci-fi characters to come out of 1930s comic strips and serials. As we mentioned in our first episode, the seed of Star Wars was planted when George Lucas was unable to secure the feature film rights to Flash Gordon and subsequently decided to create his own original space adventure. The massive success of Star Wars in 1977 kicked off a mad scramble for projects that held similar appeal, and it's only natural that studios would look to properties that were regarded as precursors to Lucas's space opera. This spurred new adaptations of both Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon. A little background on Buck Rogers. The character of Buck Rogers was created by author Philip Francis Nowlin in his novella, Armageddon 2419 AD, first published in August 1928 in Amazing Stories magazine. Armageddon 2419 AD told the story of World War I veteran Anthony Rogers, who while surveying a coal mine was trapped by a cave-in and exposed to a radioactive gas that put him in a state of suspended animation. Rogers awoke 500 years later to a post-apocalyptic world. He soon meets Wilma Deering and joins her and her allies in their efforts to overthrow the warlords who rule the land. Honestly, tonally, it's actually closer to the Hunger Games than it is to Star Wars. Nowlin's character combined aspects of Edgar Rice Burroughs' John Carter, along with elements from several H.G. Wells stories, including The Time Machine, When the Sleeper Wakes, and The War in the Air. Soon afterwards, publisher John F. Dill recruited Nolan to adapt his story into a daily syndicated newspaper strip. The main character was renamed Buck Rogers, and the strip began on January 7th, 1929. Uh, It was the very first science fiction comic strip in American newspapers, and it was an immediate hit. Very quickly, other newspaper syndicators were saying, Get me another Buck Rogers! And a wave of imitators swept through American newspapers with names like Brick Bradford, Don Dixon, and Speed Spaulding. Most of these characters are largely forgotten except for a comic strip launched by King Features Syndicate in 1934, Flash Gordon, who we'll talk about a little bit more. Buck Rogers popularized science fiction like nothing before. Prior to Buck, science fiction was largely limited to specialty magazines, but the newspaper strip brought the genre to a far wider audience. Even if it wasn't always the most sophisticated storytelling, it introduced millions to sci-fi concepts. Buck Rogers starred in a radio program in 1932, a movie serial in 1939, and a black-and-white television series in 1950. Uh, It also kicked off a merchandising bonanza when the Buck Rogers ray gun hit stores in 1934. With the success of Star Wars, Universal Television turned to Battlestar Galactica producer Glenn Larson to revive Buck Rogers for the post-Star Wars era. Which brings us to Buck Rogers in the 25th century. The year is 1987, and NASA launches the last of America's deep space probes. In a freak mishap, 
Ranger 3 and its pilot, Captain William Buck Rogers, are blown out of their trajectory into an orbit which freezes his life support systems and returns Buck Rogers to Earth 500 years later. Theatrical pilot was actually released in theaters on March 30th, 1979, before the series debuted on September 20th of that year. Rob, let's talk a little bit about Buck Rogers. So Battlestar Galactica, the original, and Buck Rogers, my brothers are older, they were into them. And I just kind of remembered them both properties as being... It just kind of equal in the I kind of did and didn't watch them, but I had some leftover toys that were half broken. Right. The minute I saw that introduction to Buck Rogers with the rocket taking off. Oh, yeah. The voiceover. I instantly remembered, oh, no, I watched Buck Rogers. Oh, yeah. No, I never watched Battlestar Galactica that closely as a kid, but Buck Rogers. and And I think I know why, because Buck Rogers... Uh, does not have any of the complicated feelings that uh, Battlestar does. No. Uh, Buck Rogers in the 25th century reimagined Buck as a NASA astronaut whose one-man spaceship Ranger 3 launched in 1987 had a life support system malfunction and Buck was frozen in suspended animation for 500 years. He is awakened in the year 2491 by agents of the Draconian Empire who are on their way to Earth for what appears to be a trade mission but is actually a covert invasion. He is eventually returned to Earth where he meets Wilma Deering and Dr. Hewer of the Earth Defense Directorate as well as his robot friend Tweaky. Mankind is recovering from a devastating nuclear war which ravaged the planet and humans largely live in futuristic cities such as New Chicago. Buck, is eventually earned, Buck eventually earns the trust of Wilma and Hewer and helps foil the impending invasion. Um, I, too, remember watching Buck Rogers even more than Battlestar Galactic. I, I remember individual episodes with great detail. Like, there was something about that show that was just on an awful lot. And it just... And, and I, I, it, it all of my memories of it are positive. I, I, we, we rewatched the pilot for this, but at some point I'm going to go back and rewatch the whole series because... Well, I'm just going to do that. Um, yeah, it's. Uh, I think the updates they made for this were great. Like, uh, you know, making Buck an astronaut rather than a mine surveyor is a much more logical late 20th century update. Uh, and it's also reminiscent of another 70s TV hero, Steve Austin, The Six Million Dollar Man, another series that Glenn Larson had a hand in developing. Uh, in a lot of ways, Battlestar and Buck Rogers were sister shows. They were both produced by Glenn Larson, and they employed many of the same talents behind the camera and reusing many of the same props, costumes, and effects. For example, the starfighters from Buck Rogers were originally designed by Ralph McQuarrie for Galactica. Um, the show starred Gil Gerard as Buck, Aaron Gray as Wilma Deering, Tim O'Connor as Dr. Hewer. The physical performer for Tweaky was Felix Silla, while the voice was provided by none other than Mel Blanc. Someone isn't gonna like that. Also, the character of Princess Ardala of the Draconian Empire was played by Pamela Hensley. And uh, I gotta say, Rob, I'm just gonna be completely upfront with this. I would betray the Earth for Princess Ardala. I wouldn't even have to be tricked into it. My goodness. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, it, it's this show is bananas. Let's just just say it. I mean, oh, absolutely. <laughs> it is. Um, it's funny that you mentioned Glenn Larson's other shows because the uh, if you look at Lee Majors, yes, in Six Million Dollar Man, and you look at Gil Gerard and Buck Rogers, and I would even say a little Dirk Benedict in Battlestar Galactica. There's clearly that desire for a similar type of manly man but with a masculine that, and virile yeah it's that whole burt reynolds era of of masculinity so I, which by the way again i feel this is a show that's also taking from Smokey and the bandit at yes. least in how its lead behaves uh if if nothing else uh um, these are all shows with a lot of chest hair let's just say oh, that oh yeah i mean it's just open collars and um you know, it, it's 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 virile, I guess. I, I, uh, I, I you know, at some point, you know, I, I you know, we, we discussed Six Million Dollar Man, and and while I feel like that series is is somewhat forgotten, it, it should be. That's one of the most influential series of the '70s and '80s. Like it really set the tone for like an action adventure series of that time, and I swear. One day I'm going to march all the way down to the boardroom uh, of the Get Me Another Board of Directors and demand that they approve a $6 million man series. I don't know if I'll get out of that boardroom alive because they are an enigmatic and dangerous bunch, our board of directors, but damn it, I'm going to try. Yeah, they're flipping coins to see what your fate's going to be, Chris. Oh, uh, it's like going into the Spectre boardroom there. It's, it's, you don't, yeah. don't sit down. No, no. Uh, yeah, never walk into a boardroom and tell the organization you're leaving, uh, is what <laughs> film has taught me, Chris. It's, and it's true, especially, especially with the group that we have. Um, it's, this is, I mean, it's, it's a fascinating show and it's, uh, I mean, my goodness, it is just, it's so, uh, well, I'll say it. And this, this applies to both Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon. Both of them are really horny. Yes. It is full on seventies free love, baby. Oh my uh, or god! Or swinging, not you know the free love had morphed into the swinging, but it, yeah. they both feel um, very disco infused. While they don't yes. necessarily have disco music, but that ethos, the the chest hair, the the um, everything, everything is a flirting situation. Everything. everything. Appropriate, not appropriate. Uh, it is. It's. Uh, it's. It's extraordinary. I sent you now. Rob and I watched two slightly different versions of the Buck Rogers pilot. He watched the uh, the TV version, and I watched the theatrically released version. And there are a couple of small differences, but one of them is the opening sequence to the theatrical version, uh, and and. And which I then sent to Rob so he would be able to to watch it. And it it it's first of all. The classic Buck Rogers theme has lyrics, and it's this kind of yacht rock, late 70s sort of thing. But it, it, it consists of these, the, the name Buck Rogers spelled out in giant translucent letters, where Buck is asleep on them. And then all these very attractive, very 70s women, including some of the cast of the show, are all just, they're just there, and they're looking very, very sexy, and they're very into Buck. And it's, it's like something directed by Zalman King. Far beyond 
Yeah, I, I tried to watch that and it triggered the filter at work. I had to finish at home. It was just like, <laughs> no, too much space sensuality here. And the show has it too. The, the show for sure has it. And I will say that is one area in which it is, and there are many areas, in which it is completely different from Star Wars. Yeah. Um, we all know what where the Luke and Leah story goes, but in the right. original Star Wars, it is presented very much as a saving the princess kind of very romantic knight type of code romantic love uh not so in buck rogers in the 25th century no this is this is a key party yeah and everyone's invited yeah that's exactly that is exactly it they had two very attractive uh female leads in 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 wilma deering played by aaron gray and pamela hensley as uh as ardala um it's interesting because Wilma Deering is presented as this very strong, assertive female character. She's a military career woman. Um, that being said, she is very clearly in a character written by a man. Uh, because she changes her tune about Buck pretty fast. Like, she's at first, she's all opposed to him. She thinks he's a spy. And then she changes on a dime for no particular reason. Um, you know, and, and, you know, and then changes back again. It, it's... It, it is and then the back one... again and then back again yeah it's, it it's yeah. it, it flip-flops um i mean yeah it's uh it's not quite you know i think at the time it was progressive in in that sense but it wouldn't be kind of really what we would consider progressive now um yeah aaron gray it, it's um when she is in charge she is very much kind of the the very reserved, what I would call almost a stern Vulcan performance for science yeah, fiction. a little bit. Absolutely. Then she turns into a 70s just puddle of womanhood for Buck. And those are the two yeah. speeds. Uh, and she doesn't get to be the puddle that often. It's mostly the, the stern. Yeah. And what I found interesting, and apparently when, because she was still new to acting. Uh, she mm -hmm. was a model who had uh, become an actor. She'd worked before Buck Rogers, but mm -hmm. and I think had a deal with Universal. Universal was was a was a television factory in the seventies and eighties. You had a lot of actors and directors under contract at the time. Yeah, and and she had uh, an anecdote that she was still very kind of tight on set and just taking mm -hmm. everything super seriously. And she credited Gill with kind of teaching her to loosen up, have fun, not take it so seriously. Not, not that they're not taking the work seriously, but just you know, it, well, it's well, it's, that's it's kind of what you're their creative. That's yeah. kind of what Buck Rogers does to the entire 25th century is teach them to loosen up and and not take things so seriously. Uh, let's talk about the space disco scene. Oh, which I love particularly because what Queen uh, Princess uh, or, Ardala, or Princess, Princess Ardala, excuse me who prior to this scene was always in some wonderful spacey outfits, but they were all like head to toe spacey outfits. This disco ball scene is, uh, I think the first, um, this is an official occasion 
mm. where yes. the Draconians are having an official ceremony with guests. They are being and... welcomed to Earth by, you know, uh, for their for their trade conference, and this is the the opening gala of the trade conference. Nobody knows except except for Buck. Buck kind of suspects, but but nobody knows that they are there to to actually invade. So it's the big gala. And what do you wear to the big gala when you are meeting a new species? The royal bikini. <laughs> <laughs> oh and my god! I, it was. I, I will say it was a little jarring uh, because it had been so restrained, uh, relatively speaking, before with the costuming, and then it was uh, not restrained at the moment you would expect it story-wise to be the most restrained. Yeah, and and what's what's amazing is that all the Earth people are super are super uptight and super square. Everybody's doing this kind of futuristic square dance until Buck goes to the to the DJ and tells him to kick it up a notch. And and then it's the classic line, what are you doing, Buck? It's called getting down. Oh, yeah. I, I love, it's kind of a proto-Marty McFly where he just goes yes. to the band leader and says, you know, play some rock and roll, which, by the way, they do not play. No. Uh, and the uh, band leader's confused. What is this rock and roll? And Buck just kind of goes, you know, like, uh, uh, uh. like he does not explain it at all. <laughs> Clearly, a man who has never taken a music theory class or held an instrument or put on a record. <laughs> but but um, they kick it up. They get they get funky, and then uh, and the princess is super into this real man oh she's into it oh she is she is definitely into it um well i didn't we didn't mention the character of dr theopolis who is the little disc computer that is carried around by tweaky and i think judging from the pilot they originally intended dr theopolis to be more of the like bucks you know kind of robot uh, you know helper and tweaky was just the 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 robot who carried him around because Tweaky doesn't say much in the pilot, um, but that that clearly changed that as they went to series because Tweaky became his number one robot. Um, but I swear to God, I think I think Doctor Theopolis gives Buck a space quaalude in that scene, which he then later <laughs> he then later slips to Ardala um, because once they leave Earth uh, with Ardala, it becomes an episode of the Six Million Dollar Man in Space. Yeah. And by the way, that is the second time Buck is drugged in the pilot. Uh, oh, yeah. He's drugged earlier by the Draconians. And I will say, I mean, it, it plays almost like Spicoli or something from Fast <laughs> Times at Ridgemont High. I mean, Buck is high as a as kite, a man. kite. <laughs> and they're true. playing it for laughs and Gil's like going for it. I mean, it's clearly intended as comedy. Oh, uh, clearly. It, but the 70s were a different time. I mean, because this is also clearly marketed towards the whole fam. And, oh, yeah. Uh, was a... They're just like, <laughs> let's do a, let's do an extended five minutes where Buck Rogers is just clearly on, on drugs. <laughs> um, yes, it, it's... Um... It's really something, and I, I, uh, I really do. I, I'm, I am gonna at some point. Re we couldn't. We just did the pilot for this episode, but I'm gonna revisit the whole series. Uh, the series featured an incredible range of guest stars: Jamie Lee Curtis, Marky Post, Jack Palance, Gary Coleman, Sid Haig, and no less than four villains from the Batman TV series showed up on various points on Buck Rogers: Cesar Romero, Frank Gorshin, Julie Newmar, and Roddy McDowell. 
Uh, and they, honestly, they were one Burgess Emeritus away from having, you know, the full boat. But it, it's, uh, it, you know, the first season was largely set at the Earth Defense Directorate in New Chicago. And then the show was retooled for its second season where it was, it became more Star Trek-like. Where the second season is set on, a, has Buck and Wilma and Tweaky joining the crew of a starship called The Searcher which is on a mission to seek out the lost tribes of humanity. So it, it's reminiscent of both Star Trek and Battlestar Galactica, where Buck Rogers visits a new planet every week. Uh, some people, apparently, uh, the, the, the second season isn't as well regarded. I remember some of those episodes really well. There was an episode of the second season called The Seder, which I remember seeing, it must have seen a bunch of times when I was a kid, where Buck lands on this planet and it's like a farmer and uh, and and he's turning into uh, this, this hooved and horned creature, this satyr, and he comes back to his family and he, you know, and, and Buck starts to slowly transform into one of these creatures again. And what I didn't realize as a kid is it was all a metaphor for, you know, for for domestic abuse it's 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 but there was some depth to it and even as a kid not quite getting the the subtext it was it was really powerful i'm re looking forward to revisiting the whole thing you know chest hair and all yeah hearing you talk about where it went in the second season makes a certain amount of sense because um when looking at buck rogers following in star wars wake um it more so than Battlestar, takes a lot of the trappings of Star Wars. Yes. Uh, you know, the, the VO to start is very simple, but it has kind of that intro again. It's not kind of trippy like Battlestars. You've got um, uh, empires and rebellions of sorts. Yep. You have cute robots for the kids. You and and they're featured much more than in Battlestar. So you've got a lot of these things. You although with the opening voiceover, it's kind of like the science fiction version of Waylon Jennings for Dukes of Hazard, more than anything in Star Wars necessarily because it's melding stuff. But it was William but Conrad story. who did that uh, that original mm -hmm. voiceover for for Buck Rogers. Um, yeah, I think uh, it's. I think you're right about all that. It feels. Uh, it feels like it. It really kind of embraced the the visual language of Star Wars, um, perhaps as much as anything we've talked about so far. Um, it, it, I think there's there's something else we do need to discuss, and it's kind of it, it's kind of a, a a pretty significant element of both of these characters is um, that there is a there is a fair amount of of racism in the in the in sort of the uh, idea of of the yellow peril and and that's something um you know in 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 the original buck rogers story united states had been conquered by the han empire which swept out of asia to conquer the world um and it really engages in demonizing asian people and and honestly in a way that was frankly all too common in popular literature of the 20th century as we get to flash gordon we'll talk about ming the merciless who is clearly a villain in the model of fu manchu um they as time went on they they left behind the the han empire and fought more intergalactic um you know opponents but um which they try to do in 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 Buck Rogers' 1979 version, the Han are replaced with the Draconian Empire. But what is bizarre is that they, they give the Draconians a very strong air of Orientalism in their style and dress. It's, 
it, you know, here was their opportunity to sort of really leave that behind by replacing these these racist villains with with a, you know an alien race, and then they make them kind of this yellow peril type of. Uh, uh, thing, which in particular the, the version I watch has one scene with Draco, the Emperor of the Draconians, played by Joseph Wiseman, who had played Doctor No in um, in the first James Bond movie, who was also kind of a, a, a Doctor No is kind of a, a, a Fu Manchu Yellow Peril type of figure, uh, and it's it's very strange to me. It's like why would they why would they not take this opportunity to sort of just let that all go? And just create a, a an empire like the Empire in Star Wars. I have a theory, and I think it's because of Star Wars, oddly enough. Even though Star Wars does not have this element. But George Lucas, very influenced by Hidden Fortress and uh, Kurosawa. Sure. Uh, some, some of the samurai films, clearly you can see the influence there. And even in the shape of Darth Vader's helmet. Yeah. And I think that styling where Lucas was borrowing from a master of cinema influenced right. them to go hey we probably need some of that styling too right not really connecting the dots on how that is counteracting the switch from yeah. the han to the draconians that that would be my guess um but you know you, you just don't know um, yeah it's interesting because the because even ardala herself is just kind of you know, sexy space babe, but it's when you get into the the Han soldier, the so there you did it, the draconian soldiers, and especially the scene with King Draco. Yes. It's just like, oh my goodness! Uh, they clearly intended him to be a bigger character um, because he was one of the action figures made. The Amigo had had a line of action figures, and um, you know he was one of them. And the twelve inch one even comes with the giant king's hat. Uh, it's. Uh, it's it's something you know. So it's it's again. It's it, we talked about this a little bit with the shadow and the phantom. There's things that that you do that, that wouldn't be done today, and these these adaptations wouldn't be done in the same way. Um, which is not to say that they can't be entertaining, but it's always with the understanding of well, hey, there's parts of this that that don't feel right in a 21st century context. Um, that said, I think uh, you know. Now might be the time to move on to our other subject for today, and that is the 1980 Flash Gordon movie. Clytus, I'm bored. What plaything can you offer me today? An obscure body in the SK system, Your Majesty. The inhabitants refer to it as the planet Earth. I like to play with things a while before annihilation. Pathetic earthlings. Who can save you now? Flash! Savior of the universe! Strange object imaged in the Imperial Vortex. Flash! Flash Gordon began as a comic strip commissioned by King Feature Syndicate in an effort to compete with the very successful Buck Rogers strip. And, and initially, they tried to secure the rights to Edgar Rice Burroughs' popular John Carter, but were unable to do so. They so they hired Alex Raymond, writer and artist, to create a brand new sci-fi adventure hero. Flash Gordon first appeared in newspapers on January 7th, 1934. And Flash Gordon is one of the rare cases of an imitator who exceeds the original. 
and largely due to the brilliant and groundbreaking art of Alex Raymond. Uh, Flash Gordon was a professional polo player who, along with his companions Dale Arden and Dr. Hans Zarkoff, uh, they leave Earth in a rocket in an attempt to prevent the impending collision of Earth with the rogue planet Mongo. There they do battle with Mongo's tyrannical ruler, Ming the Merciless, and encounter all manner of alien creatures that inhabit Mongo's diverse ecosystem. Flash Gordon was a huge success in 1936. It made the leap to the big screen in one of the most successful serials of all time. Um, two more serials followed in 1938 and 1940, uh, and then a television series in 1954. Uh, as we mentioned, George Lucas tried to obtain the film rights to Flash Gordon, but was unable to do so because they were held by Italian producer Dino De Laurentiis, who had made Barbarella in the late 1960s and actually wanted Federico Fellini to make a Flash Gordon movie, if you can imagine that. Following the success of Star Wars, De Laurentiis hired Nicholas Rogue, a director of Don't Look Now and The Man Who Fell to Earth, to write and direct the film. Rogue spent a year working on it before leaving the project due to creative differences. Uh, De Laurentiis then hired Lorenzo Semple Jr., who was one of the key writers on the 1960s Batman TV series, also wrote Three Days of the Condor and The Parallax View, and Mike Hodges to direct, uh, who had done Get Carter. He Funny, he was originally brought in as a possible director for the second Flash Gordon film. But then when Nick, Nick Rogue left, they parted way, you know, that Hodges got moved up to the first film. Um, this is a movie that I've seen many times and watched again just, just recently for this. And good God, I love this movie. I just, it's, it is, it's just, it's so much. Of all of the things that we've looked at so far in the wake of Star Wars, this is the one that most captures, and it's its own flavor of it. It Absolutely. most captures the pure, unadulterated just joy of yes. watching the the big space action. Obviously, it's yes. radically different. Uh, there, you know, this film has issues that Star Wars doesn't, which you yes. know we'll get into later. But as far as the tone and the simplicity of of story that allows you to just kind of get swept up with the characters. This one, I feel, is the most in the spirit so far. What's interesting is that this movie doesn't really borrow the look of Star Wars. It's uh, one, one distinct difference between Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon in these adaptations is Buck Rogers is very much visually in the style of Star Wars, whereas Flash Gordon is very much its own thing and really is, you know, the Alex Raymond comic strip brought to life. I agree wholeheartedly. And while Buck Rogers has the Star Wars trappings, but under the hood is very un-Star Wars-like, this feels like it doesn't have the Star Wars trappings. Yeah. But the heart that's beating underneath is very similar uh, as far as the, the hero and the just the, like the feeling you get watching the movie. Absolutely. I mean, it, it, it is really, um, you know, there's something about this that has really got, it, it's just got a... a a life to it. Uh, the 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 sets and costumes were designed by Den Danello Donati, Italian uh, uh, designer, and they are amazing. I mean, the colors of this. Uh, it, it it's no you know it's no surprise that this movie was a big influence on you know directors like Taika Waititi with Thor Ragnarok and 
and James Gunn with his Guardians of the Galaxy movies, which really infused sort of space adventure with kind of bright and bold colors in a way that Star Wars, you know, kind of at the time had pulled away from that to much more sort of drab grays and blacks, um, which again was, was very groundbreaking for the time. This feels like a kind of response to that in a different way. Absolutely. If Star Wars is science fiction, but with the Joseph Campbell, you know, mythic hero's journey, Flash Gordon feels similar, except I would say that it's the science fantasy version of all of that. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, We also have to talk about the incredible score by Queen. At, at, At the peak of their popularity... My goodness. And, and again, talk about something that is very different from the classic John Williams classic orchestral score of, of Star Wars. Here it is this synth-infused masterpiece from Queen. My God, does it do a lot of heavy lifting for this movie because it's amazing. It is. And what is most amazing about it to me is that and there are several tracks that are full-on Queen songs. Absolutely. It's like you're getting them. Including the title track. Uh, including the title track. But a lot of the pure instrumental stuff that goes with it, it's it's odd. And then it feels totally akin with the, the rock and roll tracks that have lyrics. And yeah. yet it also feels like a film score. Like yes. they, they they are incredible <laughs> writers and, and musicians. Yeah. And they can they're doing both things at once as opposed to... And, and God bless, I really love. But like, you know, let's say Kenny Loggins doing Footloose. You wouldn't imagine an album worth of Kenny Loggins tracks that are in the vein of Footloose, but also function as score. Yes. Um, it's not a knock on it. It's just. No, no, no. You know, we all, we here at Get Me Another are big Kenny Loggins fans. Let's just oh, have that yes. flat out. You know, I mean, his, <laughs> his song from Caddyshack 2 is the saving grace of that film. <laughs> Aside from, you know, Sam J. Jones as Flash, Melody Anderson as Dale, you have Max von Sydow as Ming the Merciless, uh, Topol as Dr. Zarkov, Timothy Dalton as Prince Baron, Brian Blessed as Prince Voltan, Peter Wingard, Ornella Muti, Deep Roy as Aura's pet Fellini. Uh, you have William Hootkins as Munson, Dr. Zarkov's assistant. Uh, you have English playwright John Osborne as the Arborian priest. Heck, you have Robbie Coltrane in a non-speaking role as an airport worker at the beginning. It's amazing. Um, and, and whereas, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, and this is one of those movies that feels like top to bottom, it's perfectly cast. Everyone's yeah. in the same, everyone is in the same movie. Absolutely. And they're, they're giving their all. Now, this is one where I would say the acting is stylized. And now yes. I'm not talking about over the top. I'm not, you know, it's not a parody. It's not supposed to be comedy no. or anything like that. It's not but the it, naked it, gun. It, it's nothing, nothing like no. that. No. But in much the way that Humphrey Bogart comes from that older kind of stylized acting, like uh, in Casablanca, he's mm-hmm. not trying to be as real as possible. He's trying to use a stylized performance to get at emotions and, and all of that. And I doubt he ever would have put it that way and probably would have drunkenly punched me for saying so. But yeah, yeah, uh, that would I would be... say that this is uh, very stylized. It is not a down-to-earth, um, like, post-method style of acting. No. Um, whatever the process the actors used, I have no idea. But 
It's uh, it's different from how Harrison Ford is Han Solo, for instance. Right. And I made the comparison, you know, in our in our um, our Batman series when we talked about the shadow, and I, you know, I, I made the comparison that the shadow was to to the '89 Batman what Flash Gordon is to Star Wars, and I. Having now watching Flash Gordon again, I'm absolutely convinced of the veracity of that analogy. Um, it is, it is, it is just as you say. This is a move, as you said about the Shadow. Flash Gordon is a movie that's always swinging for the fences at every moment. Um, yes, you can feel the the comic strip at times. Yeah, I love that they used. Piece of, like it, art from the comic strip in the opening credits. It, it you know mm-hmm. that along with that that you know that just that amazing Queen title track. I mean, just puts you right there uh, from from the get go. And even at the beginning, a lot of the scenes where, if you were looking at them simply from classic Hollywood narrative, you might say that there's stuff missing, and you know it, it feels like you can jump a little bit. But looking at it from the comic strip perspective, because I've read not necessarily old Flash Gordon, but Mm -hmm. I'd read uh, serialized comic strips in the newspaper. I'm that old. So the scene where early, where Dr. Zarkov and his assistant, Zarkov has figured out that uh, the moon is going to crash into Earth and that there is some alien entity from outside that is making it happen. Yes. He and his work had suspected all along. A theory that had gotten fired by NASA. Yes, yes. He then has built a rocket and is trying to get his assistant to go up and, and he gets his assistant says no he gets a gun and he's trying to like shoot at his assistant to get him to go in and then flash and dale come in from their kind of plane crash that they've had and he takes them instead now this scene you could say at times it, all the connective tissue isn't necessarily there but what it really is is it's very lean yeah. And it's giving you only the moments you need, much like you might read two or three strips in a row, like, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday that have that are very much kind of like, you know, second to second. And then when you come back Thursday, they've gone somewhere else or Monday and you just kind of have that no fat uh, at all. Yeah. The, unlike a lot of uh, uh, television and film from this era, there's no shoe leather in this movie. It it moves from from scene to scene. Um, we have to talk about how the, you know. Whereas Buck Rogers was updated from a surveyor to an astronaut, Flash Gordon is updated from a polo player to the quarterback of the New York Jets. J E T S Jets Jets Jets. And he wears his own merch. Like for the first half of the movies, he's wearing a t-shirt that says flat. That's clearly like, it's like William Perry wearing a shirt that says fridge across it. It's like, it's, it, it is, um, it's fantastic. Um, I was going to say, we should mention that by the way, Topol in that scene where, where he's, he's trying to take Flash and Dale with them in the rocket is amazing. Uh, frankly, he's amazing throughout this whole movie. Yes. I love him. I love his beard. I love yes. everything about him. Um, just the way that it's kind of the salt and pepper, but in this very theatrical way. I have no idea if that was something they did or if that was his life. But uh, it's oh. an amazing look for this character because it gives the right mix of brilliant, insane, and slightly off kilter. Um, yes. 
Yeah, it, it is incredibly, it is incredibly well done as a, as in the terms of visualizing a character, like just making that character outwardly reflect who that character is, and it's it's perfect. Honestly, all of those elements are perfect in this movie. Uh, Timothy Dalton as Baron. Obviously, we had talked about Timothy Dalton when we talked about the Rocketeer back in our Batman. I, I'm just a big Timothy Dalton fan. I was a big fan of his James Bond. Um, and he's great in this movie as Baron. Um, you know, he there's a moment where where Baron and 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 Flash are forced to fight on this on this wobbling platform over a <laughs> thousand foot drop. And eventually, Flash is able to win over, not just beat Baron, but win him over to his side. And there's a moment where Timothy Dalton says, where you go, I'll follow. And I swear to God, it hits me right in the emotions. Like, it, it I, I get the feels from that. I won't lie to you. Here's this movie, this crazy movie. And there's a moment where I genuinely get emotional. And it's it's just it's amazing. This movie's amazing. Yeah, and and he's doing that while again giving the kind of performance that does have you know it is a little stylized. It is not. Yes. It's not meant to be a guy you meet on the street. Um, and uh, it, but you know, it, it has. It's funny in some ways. It has very much that classic feel. Like he could. You know, he could be Errol Flynn or someone. Not yes. not that stiff or anything, but it's in that it's updated, so it's it's loose. But um it's just it's fantastic because uh you know, look, and I, I love I love very realistic stuff as well. Sure. But I think there's there's a place uh for everything at the table. And uh, I agree. For me this th- for me this nails it because it keeps the tone the tone is still real and that you're supposed to care uh even if it's not um taxi driver yeah no i agree i mean it's oh my god the the football fight in ming's palace honestly rob that's one of the best things i've ever seen in a movie like i said i watched this it was was my you know thousandth time watching this movie but it was my wife's first time watching it and when you have dale doing the cheerleader thing on the side I, 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 my wife's jaw just like literally dropped watching that. Just like, oh my goodness. I mean, it is amazing. Uh, and my wife pointed out, by the way, one of her observations, why there's one point where you think Flash is dead and there's a coffin. Why is there a mirror inside Flash's coffin? Brilliant. Yeah. I, that football scene is fantastic fun to watch. And it's, that's one where you get a little, you know, it doesn't quite, I mean, it's a little goofy, but it's just so much fun. You you really don't care. And it's meant to be, they know what they're doing. Right. That he's using his football abilities to, to get everyone. But that one in particular is also interesting in that it is, this is both the fun light side of the movie and the completely dark side of the movie. Where things are left over from the original Sins of the Material because... Yes. This is the scene that shows that the... Outside invaders are no match for the real white American man who's yes. red-blooded and football. I mean, literally all he has to do is exist and he knocks down like <laughs> 20 of these trained assassins or something. Um, yeah. And and this is also the time where the foreign princess uh, 
becomes enamored of the big macho man. Uh, not dissimilar, Buck Rogers in the 25th century had this as well. Um, uh, that is Ornella Muti as Ming's daughter, Princess Aura, who, when I tell you, is dressed in a way that makes uh, Princess Leia's uh, gold bikini in Return of the Jedi look modest. Uh, believe me, that is... Uh, <laughs> that is... That is absolutely true. Uh, this movie is uh, also, I should add, horny with two O's. Yes. Um, I mean, my good. If if Buck Rogers was horny, this is even more so. Uh, I mean, there's there's at one point reference to a secret pleasure moon. Um, there's a scene where Flash is trying to use the thought amplifier to talk to Dale, and or Ornell, uh, the Aura is really like is is literally on top of him, and he thinks, "My God, this girl is really turning me on." And I mean, it's just, it's my goodness. And Dale thinks back to him, "Wait, what was that?" When he says, yeah. "This girl's turning me on," and then Flash essentially thinks back new tele uh, new telepathy helmet who dis uh, like, he's like don't worry about that baby it was nothing it was nothing um yeah if buck rogers was a key party flash gordon is clearly the after party orgy it, yeah no it's studio 54 as 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 a science fiction adventure fantasy film um that is incredibly well made my goodness uh but it's bonkers um, there's, there's amazing map paintings in this movie. I thought Arborea and the Sky City are all um, incredibly designed and realized. Um, honestly, I, I'm thinking, I'm just looking at my notes and I'm thinking that the torture scene with Aura being, being whipped and there's a, there's a full on, I mean, there's a full on S&M vibe to this, this film. And I saw this film at a pretty young age and now I'm wondering if that was a mistake. Um... Yeah, and they uh, there's reference to the boar worms, which the you don't worms. see. Which you I don't have to see say, the boar worms, thank God. But you know, it's it's great. Well, that's one of those things that I feel it is left. It's worse in your head than any effect they would have been able to show at this time. Yes, um, maybe post Carpenters of the Thing, you could do the boar worms and make oh. it appropriate. But you know, um, the 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 romance in this between Flash and Dale is. In many ways, I, I would imagine, you know, partly a model for Luke and Leia, but now sure. in this movie, partly playing off of it. Except in this movie, again, because of its super horny nature, it yeah. is, um, and also it wants to do the love triangle of it with uh, with, Aura. with Aura. So I get yeah. that. But uh, unlike Luke and Leia, Flash and Dale are just insta-attracted. Uh, when Flash meets her on the plane, he's saying that he already saw her at the station and was asking about her. And it's she does not take this as creepy, but uh, no, no, she's all. very flattered. It's uh, you know uh, um, that was another one of my wife's observations is that like he's really into this chick that he's known for five minutes, and she gets very into him. They're holding hands by the time they go up in the rocket with Zarkov, which is not yes. not a lot of screen time. Maybe maybe eight minutes uh, together on screen, maybe less. And then my, my favorite is um, much later in the film when he quote unquote proposes uh, because he, he reunites with Dale after they've been separated yeah. for a while. And she says, I've got some stories to tell you. And Flash just nonchalantly says, save them for our kids. And that's how you get engaged, folks. 
And she immediately says, that's a yes. You know, like she's immediately, she's into it. Like that's, um, you know, can we talk about uh, Ming's wedding vows? Because Ming tries to, Ming tries to marry um, Dale Arden and has the best wedding vows in the history of cinema. Do you, Ming the Merciless, ruler of the universe, take this earthling, Dale Arden, to be your empress of the hour? Of the hour, yes. You promise to use her as you will? Certainly. Not to blast her into space? Until such time as you grow weary of her. I do. I do not. Um... Yeah, it's it's just the other things. I, I I didn't think about this till later, but there's no cute robots in this movie. Unlike Buck Rogers, which leaned heavy into Tweaky and 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 the cute robot thing, there's no cute robots um, whatsoever. No, I I, I think Zarkov kind of takes that role and a little bit of Hawkman, right? Yeah, a little bit of uh, Hawk. Yes, uh, Voltan not, of not the Hawkman, Hawk but yeah, Voltan. yeah. <laughs> He's, he's um, kind of your, your comic relief. And, and Zarkov goes in and out of being comic relief. But... Oh, God. Brian Blessed is amazing in this movie. I mean, there's a reason why, like, it's all yes. meme-worthy stuff. You know, you're flying blind on a rocket cycle? Oh, my God. It's just the best. <laughs> I cannot do his laugh, but it is, uh, it is a wonderful laugh of someone who's just had 18 beers. <laughs> I uh, and is super pumped about it. Um, yeah, it, they 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 don't go with the robots, but you do get um, what Clytus, who works Clytus. works for Ming, has the yes. metal face, which is kind of a you know terrifying uh, thing. And his um, when he uh, dies on Chekhov's spikes. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Because if you introduce spikes in the yes, then it has to be. Someone's got to die on them. Yes, absolutely. And, and it oozes out of, like, the organic matter oozes out of his face mask. And it's it's more like something from Abominable Dr. Fibes or, yeah. you know, where it is, it gets a little a little gruesome. Uh. I have to mention that Clytus is played by a British actor, Peter Wingard, who, while you don't see his face in this movie, is a terrific actor, was a terrific actor. He was one of my favorite number twos from the TV series The Prisoner. Um, and he is he was he was a character named Jason King in 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 two different British television series in the late, early seventies. Who let's just say uh, if you want to talk about chest hair, you know, Google Jason King and and you know see what you come up with. Because my goodness, uh, he's basically the visual inspiration for Austin Powers. It, it's it uh, and and and. He was an amazing actor who does an amazing performance where you don't see his face at all. At no point does the mask come off. Um, yeah, there's a moment. There, there are, you know, in, in talking about how this movie moves so quickly, the, the one of the few moments where I felt like it was, I feel like it's a little awkward is the reveal that Zarkov's brainwashing didn't work. <laughs> yeah. Because you feel like there's a scene missing. Where it was like, oh, where it's revealed. But then, you know, it's like, oh, you think he's brainwashed. And then it's him and, and Dale on, you know, fleeing the city. Now, that said, I love his description of how he beat the Imperial conditioning. It's fantastic. And Topol delivers this dialogue amazingly. So that's why they let us escape. 
Clyde has thought he'd wiped out your memory. But do you know why it really failed? I can't imagine. As I was going under, I started to recite Shakespeare, the Talmud, the formulas of Einstein, anything I could remember, even a song from the Beatles. It armored me, girl. They couldn't wipe those things away. You can't beat the human spirit. Yes, where you had seen him strapped to the table before in a very kind of almost doctor, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, Goldfinger laser yes. table-esque device, except it's zapping the laser into the metal band on his head. You're getting to see uh, stuff play out on screen that Clytus is watching from uh, Oh, yeah, you get his life. whole history in reverse. Including a blink-and-you-miss-it uh of his wife dying, clearly. His wife dying at a party where they he, she was thrown in the pool and then drowned. And there's no more explanation of that. No, and when you go back from there, the heartbreaking thing is that, I guess, Zarkov and presumably his wife at a different time, it, the implication is they both survived the Holocaust. Yes, yes. For her to only die in a swimming pool, was it a heart attack or something? It's just left unknown, but it's uh, yeah. it's this moment. And at the mo- at that time, you think all of these memories are getting taken from him forever. So it's, yeah. you know, it's pretty, and pretty rough. It is. And again, it, it's, Topol plays that scene and it's so good. Uh, and he, he uh, gets away with not having his memories taken because he started reci- reciting Shakespeare. The Talmud, you know, even and, a song uh, by the Beatles. Yes. Those, it armored me, girl. <laughs> oh god it's so good uh it, it's so over the top there's a, there's a quality to this movie that's clearly over the top but at the same time it is playing that over the topness with a straight face it's never veering into zucker abram zucker territory it's it's all of the characters are always playing it completely real it's it's a it's a quality that i think people didn't necessarily appreciate when the movie came out. Uh, you know, it makes me think of a movie that would come along a few years later that I am an enormous fan of, and I know you are too, Big Trouble in Little China, has oh, yeah. that same kind of quality. And I think it's something more, you know, like, I think it's something that's become more understood. This was a movie that did okay at the box office, but has become an absolute undisputed cult classic in the years intervening. Um it's got an arena rock feel to it, which is appropriate oh, yeah. because of it's not just the Queen's music, but that's like the ethos of the whole thing is go big or go home. I mean, it's it's Queen, yeah. it's Kiss, it's uh, they are putting on a show. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and and un, like I said, it didn't do quite well enough to justify a sequel, but Dino De Laurentiis wanted to make a trilogy. In fact, the, the, apparently he wanted to buy Pinewood Studios in England and make all three Flash Gordon movies at once. That did not happen. Uh, but apparently the second film would have been uh, based at least somewhat on the second serial, Flash Gordon's Trip to Mars, and introduced the Clay People. Um, there's There was other things planned for the movie that got cut out. There was going to be uh, Flash was going to have a companion, Lion Man, which is from the from the the comic strip, who would have been almost kind of a Chewbacca esque figure. Uh, and originally, the ending was a plan like the Shadow, 
the ending was originally planned to be much more elaborate. After Flash crashes into the wedding, Ming transforms into all sorts of various creatures and fights Flash, the Hawkman, and the Tree Man, and all of that had to be cut because of time and budget. Ah, and at the end, uh, so when he does crash in and stops Ming from marrying Dale and yes. also saves the Earth from the moon crashing into it. Congratulations, uh, Flat, you've saved your Earth. <laughs> and they just have uh, the giant spear that is on the tip of this spaceship. As Yeah, the have. giant, the, at the very front of the spaceship, there is a very inconveniently placed, or maybe conveniently placed spear that goes right through Ming. Yeah, and uh, when Ming goes down and he, it, it's funny, this is another one of that, and this is why I say science fantasy earlier. Yeah. The end, you get very much like a the witch in the Wizard of Oz dying kind of feel. Yeah. Where he kind of disappears. I mean, I suppose you could say it's a it's also a little riff on Kenobi, uh, you know, the robes dropping in Star Wars. But this feels much more Wizard of Oz than Well, he's than Star like Wars. sucked into the ring. Like the ring yeah. beams him. He's Ming's got this enormous ring that he's like beamed into. And then of course at the very, very end. There's a hand, you see the ring on the ground, a hand picks up the ring, and you hear Ming's laugh, and it literally says, the end, question mark. Which is the best way to end any movie ever. Ever. Uh, I mean, it's yeah. amazing. And and while I'm I'm sorry they didn't make more, at the same time, I'm like, this movie is 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 kind of brilliant, perfectly brilliant in its way, and you may never have been able to recapture that. This is a movie that does kind of have that Denoma scene like the star wars medal ceremony where they bother they bother to say oh he's he's the ruler now and then the first thing he does is and voltan will lead our armies and everyone's like yay and we all love flash yay and (laughs) And the hawkman spell out thanks flash in the air and it's amazing yeah so they, they bother to have that celebratory bit where they're they're handing out metaphorical medals to each other, it yes. feels. And then and then you can go home. I mean, we, we didn't really mention uh, Mac Von Sydow is amazing as Ming. You know, again, that character is very much, uh, you know, sort of a yellow peril trope. But Lord knows Max Von Sydow does an amazing job playing him, despite the character's kind of racist origins. Um, but, you know, he's great in it. Everybody's great in this in this movie, you got you got Richard O'Brien of of uh, of the Rocky Horror Picture Show on the pipes as one of the tree men. You know, it's it's all again. This movie is just sort of a, a delight from start to finish. It is, uh, you know, it it's one of those movies that uh, there's a reason why this has just gained popularity over the intervening, you know, decades since it was first released because it. It's just, it's just so, it's just so much damn fun. I, that brings us to the end of today's episode. I mean, again, we've we've really enjoyed talking about both of uh, both Buck Rogers in the 25th century and Flash Gordon, which are are both in their own ways pretty crazy uh, and and fun, um, you know. And we hope you've enjoyed listening. Join us next week when we're going to talk about three films that were from that were major studio efforts. That, that are not trying to imitate Star Wars, but clearly exist, or at least exist in the forms that they do because of the success of Star Wars. So we're going to talk about Alien, 
We're going to talk about Star Trek The Motion Picture uh, and the James Bond movie Moonraker. If you've enjoyed our show, please consider subscribing and following us on Twitter and Instagram at GetMeAnotherPod. And we hope to see you next week as we continue to explore what happens when Hollywood says, Get Me Another.